TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. You're listening to HBS After Hours. I'm Young Me, and I'm here tonight with Felix and Mihir. So this is going to be fun because we decided that we're going to spend the whole episode talking about one of our favorite topics, which is food. (laughs) I know both of you guys have food-related topics that you want to talk about. So Felix, do you want to get us started? Yes. I think it's one of the most significant trends out there in food, and it's called Eat Clean. (laughs) You type Eat Clean into Instagram, you get 51 million posts. Are you aware of this? Do you follow this? Do you have a sense of what it is? Well, the clean eating vernacular has become quite common, right? So you meet people and you say, oh, you, you know, you look great. And they say, oh, I've been eating clean or, you know, I've been clean eating. So I've always assumed it just meant that you're eliminating anything that tastes good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Isn't that what it is? You, first of all, anything that is white <laughs> and then anything sweet Right. No sugar. Is it it also all raw? So, I mean, the truth is, there's no standard way of defining what it is. Oh, that means I eat clean. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah, (laughs) yes. You probably exactly. And and some intuitions, I think, are very straightforward. So we know, on average, we consume too much sugar, and so people try to reduce uh, how much sugar they eat. So there's a lot in the clean eating movement that is very natural, very healthy response to what science will tell us about what's good for our bodies and what's not so good. I think what's more concerning is that the way it has become interpreted over time really has much more to do with cutting out entire food groups. For instance, people who will not eat anything that is not raw, people who will not eat anything that uh, contains sugar, people who will not touch carbs. And so then you get these really crazy combinations where people will have five different food groups that they don't touch. And then... What are you left with? Right. So then many people can ultimately not live up to the constraints that they set for themselves. And so food and eating becomes a constant struggle. And it will very often dictate in quite dramatic ways 
where people will go, where people will not go, who they will meet, when they will go out, when they will not go out. So for instance, I am gluten-free and I have another 18 restrictions. If I go to Istanbul, I probably cannot find the food that I need. So what started as a sort of concern around people's health, I think now has become an obsession. And there is a term that people use now, uh, orthorexia, uh, to describe this obsession with constraints around what you can eat. The core of the idea is food as poison. So much of what we eat is poisonous for us. I mean, you hear the word detox with respect to food more. Yeah. I mean, I have two reactions to this. You know, one is there is this legitimate reaction against the excesses of processed foods, which we went way over on. On the other hand, to me, this feels like representative of the extremism of today. I remember my father was always like, eat everything, just eat a little bit. And that is a very simple piece of advice, but we just seem to go against that. It's got to be extreme solutions. Everybody's interested in extreme solutions. And the second thing is the food debate today. I love food. I love going to good food places. But there is a narcissism to all of this. You know, like my body is a temple and anything inside is, I'm polluting it. That to me feels so wrong and problematic for the reasons you're saying. I mean, I would just underscore what you just said. First of all, we forget. If you look at the distribution of our country, the middle of that distribution is still occupied by really unhealthy eating and a lot of obesity. And so moving away from the middle of that distribution feels like absolutely the right thing for us to be doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second thing I will say about this is that I do believe one of the biggest catalysts for changing how we think about food, and it's pretty extraordinary how dramatically different our relationship with food has become, has been social media. Mm -hmm. And our ability to take something that, for the most part, was consumed privately, invisibly, in our homes, and to be able to just blast it out to the world. And taking these ephemeral experiences, which is a meal that might last 20 minutes, and create this diary of your consumption, so then food becomes identity, and it becomes fashion, and it becomes all of these other things, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what you're seeing. Yeah. And then you see it, of course, in the supply response is now immediate, right? So then restaurants start to create food. Oh, yes. That yes. Look, I had two experiences in the last couple of weeks where I went to restaurants, and, you know, it's like all these dishes. And so I asked for advice. Well, would you pick? And twice the person said, this is the item that is most Instagram. Oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. <laughs> like, it is and, amazing. It was a, and one of them was a dessert that I ate and was actually delicious. But it was also, <laughs> and also beautiful. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but uh, first and foremost, super Instagrammable. Yeah. And so you see the production now of food yes. that is as much about the aesthetics and what it looks like. But again, this is not all bad. Like, I love photographing my food, and I think it it changes the experience of food. It creates more texture around the experience of eating. I would, I mean, I feel like this is a prime A example of how, of the evils of social media. <laughs> which is, if I had to pick one place to look for, for the social evils of social media, I would look at this, which is what is meant to be a communal experience. And we enjoy our company has become a individuated narcissistic exercise which is superficial 
and completely divorced from its original meaning. No, but how is it different from Instagramming out you standing in front of some place from your exotic vacation? No, I agree. That's also evil and pernicious, (laughs) 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 which goes against my general sense of what is problematic about Instagram. But um, I don't know. For food, it feels so important and it feels so special, and it's kind of devolved in this way. When I see people taking photos. You don't at, take photos of your food? Oh, my God. I've never taken photos of my food. Really? Okay. You, That's wow. interesting. Yeah. I don't understand that at what all. What about the sharing aspect? So say you say, but oh, that's what I mean. It's not sharing with the person with you. You're sharing with the world in some anonymous way as oh, opposed no, to sharing I, like, well, let's eat this together and let's talk about I'm it. I'm sharing and, with the 125,000 special people who follow my yeah, Instagram. That's exactly yeah. it, though. <laughs> exactly. It's not sharing. Like, <laughs> but it's identity as well, right? And it's a way for you to communicate to the world what you're about. And I think that's fine. I think what you said, Young Me, before, I think is really interesting to me, sort of this idea of discipline as social status. Yeah. I'm able to do things. Yes. And I know that, you know, yes. sugar is like super addictive, but I'm the guy yeah. who can just say no to dessert. And it, and then, of course, it's consciousness of bodies and body forms and how people spend incredible amounts of time sculpting their bodies. And I think a lot of it has to do with this idea that you're just in complete control, like control as a social status. And immortality. But I do think we are forgetting that if you exclude the extreme ends of the continuum, people who eat healthy, they are healthier. (laughs) I mean... They are healthier. That's right. And yeah. they, so, That's yes, right. there's control. Yes, they're a little obsessive about it. But as a result, their Instagrams look fantastic. <laughs> their skin glows. <laughs> oh but this is, in fact, I think one of the concerns, I think, of many people, that the advice that is given, you know, what you should eat, not eat, and what makes your hair and your skin glow, yes. lots of that advice is just complete bogus. And, in fact, lots of that advice is, is counterproductive. Yes. This is what your father's advice got exactly right. Uh, eating everything in moderation, that's a recipe for health. And I think... So much of clean eating is about cutting out particular food groups. And almost always, that doesn't have great consequences. And is not terribly sustainable. I mean, just think about the thing like almond milk, right? What is that in the first place? It's basically water without nutritional value, except because... I like almond milk. You do? I'm so sorry (laughs) to hear. (laughs) No, but I agree with you. Even with the less extreme examples, there's a preciousness with respect to the food. So, for example... Avocado toast. Yeah, yes. don't, don't. And I yes. love avocado toast. Let's not go there. <laughs> oh, God. I'm sorry. But so good. 12 different kinds of grilled cheese. Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you draw the line. Exactly. You know, avocado but, toast so you is do, okay. But. but you know what I will say is for every trend, there's a counter trend. So if you look at fast food restaurants, they're trying to move in one of two directions. Some of them are trying to get more healthy and respond to this trend. Mm -hmm. And some of them are deliberately doubling down down on the most disgusting food. So Taco Bell is a great example of a company that is doing very well. And essentially, all of their product innovation is taking two 
gross things and combining them to make a new gross thing. <laughs> <laughs> so nacho fries. It's yeah. like a, a mashup of two disgusting things to make a new disgusting thing. Did you make that up or is that true? I think that was the best performing launch in the history of Taco Bell, these nacho fries. They have a fried chicken chalupa where the fried chicken is <laughs> the like outside. a shell. Yeah, yeah. It's all They have amazing. a taco shell breakfast burrito now. I mean, these are creative concoctions that they are selling like gangbusters, which are also Instagrammable in a different way, right? Yeah. I mean, this yeah, yeah. this is a different version of identity politics, basically, right? Yeah. Where you have these identity groups around food. You I mean, hear the expression on your no, face. Well, so, you so, are so I'm, disgusted. No, by- I'm not disgusted. No, what I was thinking about is, I mean, food, what's fascinating to me about food is what's occurring to me right now is it like embodies everything that's going on in society. It's everything in society is getting reified into the domain of food. Yeah. And it's totally fascinating for that reason. It is. Mm-hmm. It um, is. It's about identity. Yes. It's also about income levels. It's right. about everything that matters gets manifested in this one domain. There's a part of you that's got to feel bad for the big food companies, right? The big food oh, giants yeah. are just being buffeted Campbell's by these soup now. different trends. Yeah, Campbell's Soup is a yeah. great yeah. example. One thing you see is them trying to take all of these products and try to make them more healthy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, of course, it fails miserably. You know, food is more than just food. The brand Campbell's Soup means something, and it existed in a moment in time. And it had a set of associations with us. And no matter what you do, it's still Campbell's Soup, even if you completely change what goes into that product. And so you you have these legacy brands that are trying to figure out what to do with themselves. And just to be clear, are you saying that there is no future because it was existed at a moment in time? I think it's really hard. I mean, like if you look at Coca-Cola right now, so one of the things Diet Coke is doing is they're trying to put all these different flavors, which for sure will goose sales in the short term. Is it a long-term strategy? No, of course not. I mean, because it's still Coca-Cola. It's not LaCroix water, Mm -hmm. which exists in a completely different space in our lives, right? So you have to feel bad for these brands trying to figure out how to... Well, before we feel completely bad, I think one way to think about the clean eating movement and its origins... It's a response to the industrial production of food that turned out to be basically a catastrophe from a health perspective. So one of the ways that I sometimes think about it is when companies are not completely honest about the effects of their products, I think at some point in time, there's just a response. Something as irresponsible as just feeding the nation sugary products for two decades, it's going to come back to haunt you. And I think we're now at this moment where you see the real consequences. And so I don't don't actually feel that bad. But here's my defense of big food. All right. So there was a point in time where the industrialization of food I would argue, actually had a societal effect that was, it changed the lives of women across this country. Mm. The notion that you could put a meal on the table in 20 minutes, then you could argue that women would not be (laughs) where they are today if it it weren't for that, right? Prices came way down as a result of this. And so it moved a whole bunch of people into the middle class. So that was one phase. And then there was a second phase where everything became sort of marketing science. And that's when it really got gross. I remember reading, it might have been 12 years ago, about the scientists behind chips, you know, the chips you put in your mouth, Mm -hmm. and how they had perfected the ratio 
of carbohydrates surrounded by like mm-hmm. this flavor of salt on the outside <laughs> and made the size such that almost like a metronome. If you were watching television with a perfect rhythm, you could pick up a chip, eat it, put your arm down, pick it up and back and forth. And they were so proud yeah. of this innovation, this breakthrough, which is just a long-winded way of saying it. I think at different points in a company's life cycle, you're sort of optimizing against different things. Yeah. And at that moment, that was wow, this is amazing. You know, you're applying science now. But you totally forgot about the health yes. effect, right? So, I mean, yeah. that's a sense in which yeah. food is different. Yeah. Like yeah. food is something yeah. that will... As I was then, saying this, I realized I was And then you to have the obesity argument. epidemic. Who do you think, or can you think of a food company, big food, that you think is a dealing with this transition well? Oh, yeah. Well, PepsiCo, I think. I, yeah, PepsiCo Pepsi, is, I think PepsiCo is interesting. Coke, right? Yeah. They're yeah. doing really and interesting things. Unilever. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Somebody has a dog in this fight. Okay, wait. Hold on. Let's take a break. And then when we come back, I want to ask you about your favorite and least favorite food trends. All right, I want to do favorite and least favorite food trends right now. And so, Felix. So I start with my favorite. Okay. I, and it's been going on for a little while, so it's not super recent. But what I love is that basically menus, now when you look at it, they're getting rid of main dishes. Everything oh, is an appetizer. Small plates. Small plates. You know how you go to a restaurant, all the appetizers look so interesting, I agree. so out there, so creative. And then you get to the main dishes and you go, what do you mean? Steak and Hanger beans. Steak. Or like, <laughs> like why was it why somehow totally it was much more Difficult to be creative with main dishes Sometimes than with appetizers. Sometimes I just order a few appetizers. And that's right. Yeah. And yeah, then we totally. started ordering yeah, appetizers. Yeah. And now that's essentially what the menu is. Yeah. So I'm in love, love that. with small dishes. Ooh, that's a good one. What's one of your favorites? So I have a ne- actually, I was going to start with a negative one. Okay. That's okay. All right. And I feel bad because I went to Hawaii for like the first time. And now I see these restaurant chains everywhere for poke. Oh. <laughs> oh, my God. So poke, which is raw They're tuna. Everywhere. They are everywhere. everywhere. And this feels to me like this is just a huge poke <laughs> bubble, I think. <laughs> and I see, I see the blood on the streets of all the poke entrepreneurs. I don't actually get on so many levels. I don't get it in terms of the taste. I don't get it in terms of the presentation. I don't get it in terms of the economics of these businesses. Meaning the price points at which they're serving these things, the whole thing just feels wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so my intuition my, is always raw fish served in a really spicy format has got to be about its old fish. It's got to be about spicy tuna, anyone? No, thank you. I, I, I love my... That has actually never occurred to me. <laughs> really? That's my first... I have no idea whether that's right or not. But that's my first intuition. No, I that have to so say, right. one of the heavenly experiences in life is just a clean piece of sashimi. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But poke is the opposite of that. Yeah. I just don't get it, and I think it's a terrible trend. All right, I'll do a good one. One of my favorites is I love the elevation of food trucks and street food as a legitimate form of cuisine. And I love it more generally. I love this phenomenon of looking for amazing cheap food. And I love the ethnic mashups that you get, Yeah, you know, kimchi tacos, you know, just all of that stuff. 
I love that. Um, okay, your turn again, Felix. So here's one that I don't like. I think it tends to happen more in higher-end restaurants, but when the server comes and they explain the dishes <laughs> as if you were in the restaurant to cook it yourself, okay? <laughs> we start with, and then we do this, and then we do that, and we chop it really finely. I'm not here to cook. This is not cooking school. This is like I want to sit down and eat my meal. It's driving me nuts. And then, of course, it's like the seven specials of the day. Yeah. And 20 minutes later, you have no recollection of, of, of what that first thing was. Now, the funny thing is when they go through all the specials yeah. and then you don't order any of them. So you listen <laughs> politely you don't re- and then I don't you'll remember. say, I'll have. So I want to know your strategy. Do you steer away or steer towards? On the margin, there's a dish. It's called a special, and it's not or not. It's yeah. called a, does that make you want to order it more or less? Because are you thinking like they're trying to move the goods, or are you trying to think? <laughs> so I tend to think the special, in particular, if it's sort of credible that it's a special yeah. of the day, uh, I tend to think it's probably fresher. But then I'm super skeptical about chef's choice. So when they serve the entire meal and it's oh. and it's not that is like to me no you're selling me what's been in the fridge for a very oh, long no unless you it's got Japanese it. if you get the omakase, omakase yeah. oh, that's or the at best. high end oh, Julia in Cambridge they have a chef's table it's amazing you just put yourself in their hands I think it's spectacular but don't you think it's like no not a good place at a good place that's no. the best all right your turn um, right here. I have just a, it's not a trend it's a strategy okay. that right. um, my wife and I have employed in the past which is. It's called the high, high, low, low strategy. Okay. So like budget-wise, there's a whole middle end of the distribution, which is kind of expensive and not that good. So our high, high, low, low strategy is you go high, high, oh. like oh. super high, oh. super and good. Expensive. Or and, low, low. Or low, low. I like that. And that's the food truck or the yes. super low, low. It's a great strategy. Yeah. The only problem is it can devolve into a high, high strategy. But I think if you stay rigorous about high, high, low, 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 low. it's great. But I find that the middle or even upper middle. Why do you think that is? It's like mediocrity, right? It's just, I don't know. That's a good question. Why is the price point in the middle? But I think that's a function of the city. So if you're in San Francisco, I think you can find a lot of really great in the middle, Mm -hmm. like neighborhood neighborhood restaurants in the middle. New York, I think, is the same thing. Boston, a little less so, but be- getting better. Yeah. But it's that neighborhood restaurant. It's not the chain. Yeah. It's- so that's my recommendation, which is the high, high, low, low. Okay. So I have to tell you a trend I hate, which is the politics of potlucks, particularly in any school environment. My sister was so, talking to me about this. Oh, yes. my God. If you're in any so school environment, like a school event, yeah. and all the parents have to bring a dish. Something. Uh-huh. It becomes... <laughs> It's the worst of America. It used to be that potlucks were an opportunity to commune and to connect with each other over food and your child's sporting event, their play or whatever. But now it's, oh, I can't believe this person brought in muffins with refined sugar. The politics around who brought what. Is it about envy or competition? So there are multiple layers. So you put aside the allergies, which everybody understands and everybody is sympathetic to. But there are all of these sort of preferences or, oh, we only eat this and we only eat that. And then there's 
beyond that, another layer of just judgment, (laughs) judgment (laughs) around the type of sugar or is that store-bought or is that, I mean, there's just, it's. I feel like the potluck was meant for an era when lots of people were cooking at home. Yes. So on the margin, having everybody cook was smart because an effort was being distributed. Now, lots of people don't cook at home. Yes. Now you're making everybody cook at home. I know. It's, it's <laughs> and then terrible. And bring food to a place. It's really it just feels it's like, the worst. Yeah. It really is the worst. Let's do one more round, a good one or a bad one. So this is just about a dish that really surprised me. In a, in a restaurant, they had mushroom ice cream. Ooh. And I think, oh, my God, what is this? And it was Fabulous. Really? Delicious. So, <laughs> really? so my wife and I, we had a conversation about we can't remember too many times when food really surprised. Because you, you get so used to these unusual combinations. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't work. And this, this just like totally surprised because, you know, mushroom ice cream. And I'm telling you, it was delicious. Wow. Okay. In part because I have a former student who started this, which is I'm interested in insects And as a source of protein. Oh, like crickets and things like that? Yeah, like chirps. And I think they're interesting. The brand I was thinking about is chirps. I think they've figured out taste in addition to the protein. And there's, you know, at some very high level, if you think about the ability to kind of continue to get protein out of animals and the environmental impact of that, it's complicated and problematic. And so I think these alternative sources of protein, including, by the way, avocado toast, uh, <laughs> but insects in particular. Back. But, but, so does this chirp? Do they taste? What they, they, they taste great. Oh, you you wouldn't. What do no. they taste like? No, they okay. actually taste different, but they taste good. Okay, it's not All like right. they're trying to mimic another food. Okay. They just happen yeah. to taste really good. And I think that whole field of insects is is just interesting and huh. worth keeping your eye on. So I like this company called Imperfect Produce. And what they do is they work with farms and 20% of the fruit and vegetables produced by farms, they have to throw out because it's, it looks ugly essentially yeah. and, or it's scarred or it's misshapen. So they package this up and you can subscribe and have a box of produce delivered to your home at about 50% discount to what you pay in the store. And it's ugly fruit and ugly yeah. vegetables. And it's fantastic. Right. It's um, What a great idea. Yeah, it's really nice. Okay, we'll come back with... To close it out, our after-hours picks. I'm going to go first because mine is about food. Oh, perfect. Perfect segue. So mine is a YouTube channel, and it's called Peaceful Cuisine. Have you seen it? No. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) What is it? It's, you know how you can go on YouTube and you can watch food being prepared or you can watch people cook, but there's always chatter or there's always some kind of pizzazz around it. This is the opposite. So they'll prepare (laughs) a bowl of noodles, but it's so beautiful and it'll have a little bit of music in the background or you can have it without the music. And the, and the food is The food made, is gorgeous. Is, is made already. No, no, or, no, 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 yeah. no. They prepare oh. the food and Is it an in instructional? It's like tasting. Or it's meditative. No, no, it's just meditative. Oh it's just God. when you're feeling stressed, you go to peaceful cuisine. So, for example, if I'm traveling and I'm in an airport and I'm just, there's noise, I'll just put my headphones on and I'll sit in a corner and I'll just watch some peaceful cuisine. That's my recommendation. Wow. Yeah. Oh, All right. Very nice. What about you? I have a recommendation. It might be useful in the summer. Uh, for instance, if you're wondering 
what's the water gun that I should buy for this summer? <laughs> I've been asking myself kidding. that. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, I have uh, rediscovered, I should say, wire cutter. And oh. I think it's the company, it's, it's the recommendation company at the New York Times. They bought, bought it, it. Yeah. Uh, for, I think, $20, 30000000 million. And I think they're doing recommendations in, in a perfect fashion. Really? Here's like two things that I love about You know, you go on Amazon yeah. and you read like the first 25 comments are not that instructive and then you sort of give up and you buy whatever. What I love about Wirecutter recommendations, they get right to the point. And the segments are really interesting. So for instance, they say, we tested smartwatches. And then here's the best smartwatch if you have an iPhone. Here's the best <laughs> smartwatch if you have an Android. Because no one's going to change their phone to go with it. And so the segmentation that they have huh. is really great. And then what I love is you can drill down and they will tell you about the research that they did and how long they sat on this office chair and how they picked the office, like all of that. Or you can just say, I want the best office chair out there. Two seconds later, you have what you want. And so if you want a quick recommendation, Wire cutter is the place. <laughs> That's good. What did you buy recently? I was thinking about that water gun. Oh, my God. <laughs> stay away from me. Your office is right next to mine, so yeah. stay away from me this summer. Um, so I have my usual recommendation, and then I have a late-breaking food one, which might be <gasps> helpful. So Tom Wolfe recently passed away, and he was one of my favorite writers. And I discovered an essay he wrote about 10 years ago, which I'd never read before, but it's so good. It's um, it's called Pell-Mell. And as you know, he was like this incredible wordsmith, mm -hmm. and he invented so many important phrases. Um, but this essay is called Pell-Mell, and it's about what makes America a great country. Hmm. And he does it by talking about one of the first state dinners that Thomas Jefferson ever had. And basically, they didn't have assigned seating. And everyone was shocked. Like all these European diplomats were completely shocked. <laughs> And he uses that as a metaphor to talk about America. Mm. And it's just incredible. My very late-breaking food recommendation, because mm -hmm. I was thinking about this during the show, is the best book about food I know is The United States of Arugula by David Camp. He tells the history of how America 50 years ago, it was like all iceberg lettuce. And in a very short period of time, there's now like... 50 kinds of lettuce. 50 kinds of lettuce. And he tells the story through tastemakers. So Alice Waters and Craig oh. Claiborne mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. Dean and DeLuca. And it's just about how, if you think about it, when you know, my family came to this country, the food scene was pretty bad and pretty basic. And in our lifetimes, yeah, we have seen a complete revolution in food variety and ethnicities types. And, and he kind of explains why that happened. So that, it's a great book. Huh. Awesome. That was fun, you guys. <laughs> As always. As always. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is HBS After Hours. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. 
grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. 